Genesis chapter 36. These are the generations of Esau, that is Edom. Esau took his wives from the Canaanites. Ada, daughter of Elon the Hittite, Aholibamah, the daughter of Ana, the daughter of Zibion the Hivite, Basamath, Ishmael's daughter, the sister of Nebaioth, and Ada bore to Esau Eliphaz, Basamath bore to Ruel, bore Ruel, and Oholibamah bore Jeush, Jalem, and Korah. These are the sons of Esau who were born to him in the land of Canaan. Then Esau took his wives, his sons, his daughters, and all the members of his household, his livestock, and all his beasts, and all his property that he had acquired in the land of Canaan. He went into, the, into a land away from his brother Jacob, for their possessions were too great, for, too great for them to dwell together. The land of the sojourners could not support them because of their, lives, their livestock. So Esau settled in the hill country of Seir. Esau is Edom. These are the generations of Esau, the father of the Edomites, in the hill country of Seir. These are the names of Esau's sons. Eliphaz, the son of Ada, the wife of Esau. Ruel, the son of Basimath, the wife of Esau. The sons of Eliphaz were Teman, Omar, Zepho, Gatam, and Kenaz. Timnah was a concubine of Eliphaz, Esau's son, and she bore Amalek to Eliphaz. These are the sons of Adah, Esau, Esau's wife. These are the sons of Ruel, Nahath, Zerah, Shema, and Mizah. These are the sons of Basimath, Esau's wife. These are the sons of Aholibamah, the daughter of Anah, the daughter of Zibion, Esau's wife. She bore to Esau Jeush, Jalem, and Korah. These are the chiefs of the sons of Esau. The sons of Eliphaz, the firstborn of Esau, the chiefs of Teman, Omar, Zepho, Kenaz, Korah, Gatim, and Amalek. These are the chiefs of Eliphaz in the land of Edom. These are the sons of Ada. These are the sons of Ruel, Esau's son. The chiefs, of ne the chiefs Nahath, Zerah, Shammah, and Mizah. These are the chiefs of Ruel in the land of Edom. These are the sons of Basimath, Esau's wife. These are the sons of Aholibamah, Esau's wife. The chiefs Jeush, Jalem, and Korah. These are the chiefs born of Aholibamah, the daughter of Ena, Esau's wife. These are the sons of Esau, that is Edom. And these are their chiefs. These are the sons of Seir, the Horite, and the inhabitants of the land. Lotan, Shobal, Zibion, Ena, Dishon, Ezer, and Dishan. These are the chiefs of the Horites the sons of Seir in the land of Edom. The sons of Lotan were Hori and Hemam, and Lotan's sister was Timnah. These are the sons of Shobal, Alvin, Manahath, Ebal, Shepho, and Onem. These are the sons of Zibion, Aya, and Ana. He is the Ana who found the hot springs in the wilderness, and he pastured the donkeys of Zibion, his father. These are the children of Ana, Dishon, and Aholibamah, the daughter of Ana. These are the sons of Dishon, Hemdan, Eshban, Ithran, and Keran. These are the sons of Ezer, Bilham, Zavan, and Achan. These are the sons of Dishan, Uz, Uz, and Aaron. These are the chiefs of the Horites, the chiefs Lotan, Shobal, Zibion, Ana, Dishan, Ezer, and Dishan. These are the chiefs of the Horites, chief by chief in the land of Seir. These are the kings who reigned in the land of Edom before any king reigned over the Israelites. Bela, the son of Beor, reigned in Edom, the name of his city being Dinhaba. 
Bela died, and Jobab, the son of Zerah of Basra, reigned in his place. Jobab died, and Husham of the land of the Temanites reigned in his place. Husham died, and Hadad, the son of Bedad, who defeated Midian in the country of Moab, reigned in his place, the name of his city being Avith. Hadad died, and Samla of Masrika reigned in his place. Samla died, and Shoal of Rehoboth on the Euphrates reigned in his place. Shoal died, and Bahal Hanan, the son of Akbor, reigned in his place. Bahal Hanan, the, the son of Akbor, died, and Hadar reigned in his place, the name of his city being Pau. His wife's name was Methabel, the daughter of Matred, the daughter of Mezabhab. These are the names of the chiefs of Esau, according to their clans and their dwelling places, by their names, the chiefs Timnah, Avla, Jethath, Oholibama, Elah, Pinon, Kenaz, Tamar, sorry, Tamam, Mib, Mizbar, Mibzar, Magdiel, and Aram. These are the chiefs of Edom, that is Esau, the father of Edom, according to their dwelling places in the land of their possession. Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojournings in the land of Canaan. This is the word of our Lord. You may be seated. Let's pray again together. Heavenly Father, as we approach this passage of Scripture, Lord, we praise you for it, for it is your word to us this morning. Lord, as we approach these genealogies, we, we find passages that are, are hard to understand, passages that are hard to keep our attention. But Lord, we pray that by your Spirit, you would proclaim this word to our hearts this morning. You'd help us to see what is happening here in these generations of Esau. We pray that you would help us to see the application that endures for all people, including us here this morning. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as we look at Genesis chapter 36, we're looking at one of the longest chapters in Genesis. And as you undoubtedly notice, I mentioned to the, to the kids, this is another genealogy. This is the genealogy of Esau. This is the ninth of ten Toledots in the book of Genesis. This is the second last section in the book of Genesis. If you remember, Toledot means the generations of. Each section of Genesis begins with the words, these are the generations of. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth. These are the generations of Adam. These are the generations of Noah, and so on. These are the generations of Esau. When we come to the genealogies in Scripture, we, we too easily tune them out, or, or sometimes people even skip them altogether. After all, they're, they're a list of, of strange-sounding names that we're unfamiliar with. In fact, e even some that we would consider to be conservative commentators suggest that a preacher should not devote a whole sermon to a passage like this one, to the exposition of a genealogy. And some, some of the commentaries themselves actually skim or, or even skip this passage altogether. Well, I hope you know this church well enough to know that that's not going to happen. That we're, we're not going to do that. We're going to work our way through this genealogy and see what God's Word has to teach us from it. Because remember, Genesis 
36.1 to 37.1 is part of the scripture that Paul speaks of in 2 Timothy 3.16 and 17 that is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So the genealogies, and, and even this genealogy of Esau, son of Isaac, but stranger to the promises of God, has important lessons to teach us about who God is and how he relates to people. How he relates to people both inside and outside of his covenant promises. The inclusion of this genealogy here, immediately after the conclusion of the Toledot of Isaac, immediately before the Toledot of Jacob, follows a pattern that we've seen repeatedly with the genealogies in Genesis. With the genealogy of Esau, we have a non-elect genealogy prior to the discussion of the elect line. So a genealogy of the line of rejection before Moses moves on to discuss the line of promise. And after this, we're going to have the Toledot, the generations of Jacob. So it's like what's happening here is, is Moses wants to tidy up loose ends before moving on to, to discuss Jacob and his offspring for the, the rest of the book of Genesis. We've seen this repeatedly in Genesis 4 and 5. We saw the genealogy of Cain followed by the genealogy of Seth. Cain was rejected. Seth was chosen. In chapters 10 and 11, we saw the generations of Noah followed by the generations of, of Noah's sons. Noah was chosen and two of the three of Noah's sons were rejected. In Genesis 25, we saw the, the genealogy of Ishmael, followed by the, gen, the generations of Isaac. Ishmael was rejected. Isaac was chosen. So here as well, we're going to be talking about this, the generations of Esau, who was rejected, before moving on to talk about Jacob, who was chosen. So a genealogy is not just a list of names to be skimmed or skipped altogether. These names have something to teach us. And as you look through the genealogies in your scripture, it's also helpful to note that there are, are editorial comments and, and additional information along the way that's going to help to guide you in your interpretation. This is the case here as well. So in order to understand the importance of, of this genealogy or any genealogy in scripture, you need to consider how it fits into the wider redemption story into redemption history of what God is doing with his people. The name of Edom, the, the people of Esau, is going to, to play a large part in the history of Israel. And so the contrast that we're looking at here is not just a contrast between Jacob and Esau, but between the, the people of Jacob and the people of Esau, between, the, the, between Israel and Edom. Now again, we've, we've seen this repeatedly. This is about, we're talking about the, the nations who descend from Jacob, the nations who descend from Esau. This is the continuation of the promise of Genesis 3.15 regarding the seed of the woman versus the seed of the serpent. But all is not as you would be inclined to think. 
The generations of Esau show how Esau and his descendants grow mighty, while Jacob, at least for now, doesn't. Esau, who was the forefather of the Edomites, prospers outside of the promised land, whereas as Jacob, the forefather of the Israelites, suffers inside the promised land. It, it doesn't make sense from, from the way that, that we think the world should work. But before we dive in here, I think a bit of background would be helpful. It's been a long time since we've, we've looked at this, so, so let's, let's go back to Genesis chapter 25, back to the, the conception and birth of Jacob and Esau. If you remember from chapter 25, Rebekah was barren, so Isaac prayed. And then she conceived twins, Jacob and Esau. And if you remember from that story, that these twins were, were, were opposed to each other. They were at odds and wrestling even within the womb. And when they were born, Esau was red and hairy and born first, and Jacob was born second, grasping Esau's heel. And if you remember, the name Jacob means heel grabber. So he was born grabbing Esau's heel. This is, this is a very bizarre conception and, and birth. Something, something unique and something special is going to take place here between these brothers. Now this, this, this animosity and this tension between them continued. Esau was, was a man of the field. He was a hunter. He was outside, whereas Jacob was a, was a homebody. Esau was preferred by Isaac. Jacob was preferred by Rebekah. If you remember, one day, Esau, in chapter 26, Esau came back from the field famished. And Jacob tricked him out of his birthright for a bowl of red stew. And it is from this red stew that Esau's descendants get their name Edom. Edom means red. This is going to be, we're going to see this name Edom throughout this chapter. We're told that in doing this, in trading his birthright for a bowl of red stew, that, that Esau despised his birthright. That Esau was more interested in filling his stomach than in fulfilling his spiritual heritage. And then you remember years later in chapter 27, Isaac, who was thinking he was on his deathbed, called Esau to his side and told him to, to hunt for some game and cook a meal for him so that Isaac could bless him. But Rebekah overheard and, and came up with a plan and she told Jacob to go and get two goats which she would prepare just the way that Isaac loved. Now Jacob was concerned, but he wasn't concerned about the immorality of deceiving his father. He was concerned about getting caught and getting cursed by his father instead of blessed. Rebekah said that she would take the curse and told Jacob to obey her. So he did. He went and got the goats, which she prepared, and then she took the skins from the goats and put them on Jacob's arms and on his neck so that when he came close to his, his almost blind father, that that Isaac wouldn't recognize him and would think he was actually Esau, and that he would get the blessing instead of Esau. And Isaac was indeed deceived. He blessed Jacob with the, with the dew of heaven, with the, the fatness of the earth, with plenty of grain and wine, as Lord over nations, as Lord over his brothers. And then finally, with the same blessing that was given to Abraham by the Lord, 
Back in Genesis 12, cursed be everyone who curses you and blessed be everyone who blesses you. And then Jacob leaves and almost immediately Esau comes in. And when he realizes what has happened, that he's been deceived, Isaac trembles violently. We feel, we feel pity for Esau when he realizes he's been cheated. And he cries out, have you but one blessing, O my father? Bless me even also, o, me, O my father. And he lifted up his voice and wept. And, but instead of a blessing, Esau received a curse that he would be away from the fatness of the earth, away from the dew of heaven, living by the sword, but that eventually he would break his brother's yoke from his neck. And Esau was furious and sought to kill his brother. But again, Rebekah sprang to action. She tricked Isaac into sending Jacob away to Haran, to her brother, in order to find a wife because she was, was grieved by the, the Hittite women, Judith and Basimath, that, that Esau had married. And this tells us something else about Esau, that he had no regard for his religious his family's religious heritage in marrying pagan women. And later, when he realized that his, his parents were displeased, he took another wife, Mahalath, the daughter of Ishmael. This information is going to be important for our passage this morning. But then remember in chapter 29, Jacob the deceiver goes to Haran and meets his match and his uncle Laban, who cheats him into working for him for 20 years. 20 years of hard labor. But... Jacob comes back after those 20 years with four wives and 12 children. And we see through what, is, what happens with Jacob as the story unfolds that the Lord has worked through this, his experiences and brings him back to the land of Canaan with a new name that reflects his new character. And so Jacob reaches out to his brother Esau. And by an amazing act of God's promise, providence, the two reconcile that they make up. And they even come together at the end of chapter 35 to bury their father, Isaac. And then this takes us to chapter 36, the generations of Esau. So in this, in this passage, there's, there's really five sections. And in each section, we're going to see Esau and his progeny expanding in prosperity and power. In verses 1 to 8, we see Esau's immediate family. Verses 1 to 8, Esau's immediate family. The section begins, these are the generations of Esau. That is Edom. And right away, our minds are, are drawn to the future. They're, they're drawn to, the, to the, Edom, the Edomites, the descendants of Esau. But they're also, our minds are also drawn backwards to that red stew that I was talking about earlier. And the fact that, that Esau is, is Edom is going to be mentioned three more times in this passage. This is an important thing that Moses wants us to see. And what follows are the names of three wives of Esau and, and of five sons that he fathered with them. The names of the wives listed here are Ada, Oholibamah, and Basimath. And the fact that Esau's wives were Canaanites is, is highlighted, though technically Basimath was actually Egyptian. The, the term Canaanite seems here to be a, a catch-all phrase for the pagan people of the region. But if you, if you've caught, if you picked up on this from what I talked about earlier in, in chapters 26 and 28, there's, a, there's an apparent contradiction. The, the, 
the list of, of three names of Esau's wives here is different from the names of the three wives that are listed in, in chapters 26 and 28. Well, the most likely explanation for this is that, is that Esau had more than three wives and that, that Judith is not mentioned here. Basimath also was named Ada to distinguish her from Basimath, the daughter of Ishmael. People often have more than one name in the ancient Near East. We see that with, with Jacob himself, who was also called, who was also called Ishmael, or, and we also see with Esau, who was also called Edom. Ada was the mother of Eliphaz. Basimath, the mother of Rule and Holy, Oholibama, was the mother of Jeush, who became who was an Edomite, he became an Edomite chief, sorry, he was an Edomite chief, Jalem, and another major chieftain, Korah, another tribal leader. It's important to remember here that, that Esau's wives were, outside, were from outside of his religious family. He, he's married outside of the family tree. We think about this as opposed to, to Jacob, who actually obeyed his parents and actually went and married from within the family. Now, boys in this church, I, I know that most of you are still at an age when you think that girls have cooties. But girls, you, you probably think that the boys have cooties too. But I want you to, I want you to just t t to remember this. This is very important. If you want to follow God, you must never marry an unbeliever. If you want to follow God, do not marry an unbeliever, but do not even ever date an unbeliever. Because you will be disobeying God. So if you're going to be a Christian, you cannot, you cannot ever marry an unbeliever. Esau should not have married Canaanite women. Again, it shows that he was rejecting his family's religious heritage. As a, as a Canadian living in Australia, people used to kid me about the Canadian women. Not the Canadian women, the Canadian women. And that's why I married an American. Sorry, I'm a little joke. It, it, in verses 6 to 8, we see Esau packing up his family and his possessions and leaving Canaan for the hill country of Seir. We, we see that, that Esau has become quite prosperous. We got a glimpse of that back in chapter 32 when, when he came to Jacob with his 400 men and his testimony of, of his wealth, not to mention the, 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 the great gift that, that, um, that Jacob had given him. So, so Esau is leaving the promised land a very wealthy man. But he's leaving the promised land. He's leaving the promised land. And it says here that he's leaving the promised land because he had, he had such wealth and, and his brother had such wealth and so many livestock that the land couldn't support them both. Does that remind you of anything? That's right, Abram and Lot. Remember that Lot left the promised land for greener, the greener pastures of Sodom and Gomorrah. And we know how that worked out for Lot and his family. Remember that, that Esau and Jacob are the, offsprings, uh, the offspring of Abraham. And so, so this wealth that they're receiving is, is at least in part a, a temporal blessing that is part of the promise for Abraham's seed. But Esau, who's part of the rejected seed, leaves Jacob alone 
to inherit the promised land. This is another example of Esau's abandonment of his religious heritage. Remember that, that the land had been promised to Abraham and to his offspring back in Genesis 12 and again in chapter 13 and, and again in chapter 17. But Esau is rejecting that. He's walking away from it. And finally in, in verse 8, to drive the point home, again we're told that Esau is Edom. Next we see in verses 9 to 19, Esau's sons and chiefs. In verse 9 we have a repetition of the phrase, these are the generations of Esau. This introduces the rest of the chapter. So first we have a repetition of the information about the three wives and five sons. Then we read about his ten grandsons, six through Eliphaz and four through Ruel. The sons of Oholibamah are mentioned down in verse 14. Now only a few of these names are mentioned anywhere else in the Bible. Timan is likely a town upon which the prophets repeatedly pronounced judgment. Kenaz might be familiar to you because Caleb, Joshua's friend, is, is referred to as a Kenazite. But the name Amalek should also be familiar. The Amalekites appear often in the Old Testament, almost always as the enemies of Israel. So as you track forward, through redemption history, you, you can see what, what, where the, the offspring of Edom are, are headed. But the focus here for now is on the fact that Esau's descendants are flourishing. The focus is, is also on the political development of the Edomites. Look in verses 15 to 19. Here we get more information. The word chief is used here eight times just in these few verses. Now, now a chief in this context is a, a tribal leader. Esau's sons, were told, are leaders. Now look at verse 19. Again, we're told, these are the sons of Esau, that is Edom. These are chiefs. Esau's offspring are presented as leaders. Now in verses 20 to 30. Chiefs of the Horites. The chiefs of the Horites. Now this section adds to the picture of just how powerful the offspring of Esau were. The scene now shifts from the sons of Esau to the Horites, the original inhabitants of Seir. We're told that seven sons of Seir dwell in the land. They father 21 children. Many, many of you would have, have read in Deuteronomy 2 this week from the five-day reading plan of what happens to these these Horites in the land of Seir. They were cast out. They were defeated and destroyed by the Edomites. They were dispossessed and destroyed. Much as the people of Israel had begun to dispossess and destroy the Canaanites. So the offspring of, of Esau aren't just leaders. They're powerful leaders, we're told. Brian Borgman points out the irony. He says Esau and his family would enter a land not promised to them and easily displace the people of the land. Well, on the other hand, Jacob's people would enter a land promised to them but would have a very difficult time displacing them. This is the irony. This is what we see between the differences between, between Jacob and Esau, but it's not all as it seems. But Esau didn't just dispossess and destroy them. 
He also intermarried with them. Esau's wife, Aholibamah, was from a prominent Horite family. Look at verse 24. She was the daughter of, of Ana, who founded hot springs in the wilderness. Now, finding water in the wilderness was a big deal for people living in, the, in, the, in an arid place. But notice, too, that his family had a herd of donkeys. This is a sign of, of great wealth and power in the ancient Near East. So this picture of Esau and his family as powerful and prestigious is growing. Not only did he and his family forcibly take the land from the Horites, but Esau married into a prominent Horite family. This also, again, highlights the fact that, that Esau has joined himself with pagans, with the enemies of God, and he's proving himself to be an enemy of God. In verses 31 to 39, we have the kings of Edom, the kings of Edom. This is another intensification of the description of the power and the prestige of Esau's progeny. Now we're talking about kings. We move from Esau's sons, many of whom were chiefs, now to kings. The statement in verse 31 is very telling. These are the kings who reigned in the land of Edom before any king reigned over the Israelites. Now having kings was a sign, again, of power and prestige. The Edomites had kings. Israel didn't. In fact, Israel would not have a king for hundreds of years until the elders of Israel came to Samuel in 1 Samuel 8 and demanded that he give them a king who would rule over them like the other nations. So the descendants of, of Esau, we can see from this, are depicted as being a, a powerful nation long before the descendants of Israel. So it appears as though the seed of rejection is prospering above the seed of promise. Eight kings and their cities are listed here. It's interesting that none of these kings has, is the son of his predecessor. It seems like kingship was, was selected, not inherited like most other monarchies. Jacob was promised in 3511 that kings would come from his own body. But Esau didn't ever receive that promise. Yet here we have eight kings who are associated with Esau coming through his line. And here we see God fulfilling his promise to Abraham from chapter 17, verse 16, that his offspring would be kings. The descendants of Esau have already received this. But the descendants of Israel are going to have to wait for a very long time. And finally, in verse, uh, chapter 36, verse 40 to 37, 1, we see Esau's versus Jacob's dwelling places. Here we have 11 names listed, seven names that we're seeing for the first time. It seems that the names that are listed here refer to places rather than people. The earlier list was genealogical. This one is geographical. This, it's according to their dwelling places. The descendants of Esau have spread through the region. They're reigning as chiefs. They're possessing the land. But now look at chapter 37, verse 1. Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojournings in the land of Canaan. It's important to realize that this final section of Genesis, the Toledot of Jacob, doesn't begin until verse 2. 
Remember, each of the ten sections in Genesis begin with the words, these are the generations of, and we don't find that until chapter 37, verse 2. So chapter 37, verse 1, belongs with the genealogy of Esau. Esau's progeny, that the seed of rejection, is seen to be possessing a land that was never promised to them. But Jacob, the seed of promise, is merely sojourning in the land of Canaan. They wouldn't possess that land for over 400 years. Esau's powerful progeny may possess the land, but they're outside of the promised land. Jacob is only sojourning, but this is the land of his father. This is Canaan. This is the promised land. He is in the promised land. But we think about, about how things progressed with, with Esau, from, from sons to chiefs to kings to, to, to places that they ruled over. But with Jacob, as Alan Ross says, Jacob had no clan leaders or kings yet, and no lands to govern, and no expanding tribes yet. Receiving the true spiritual blessings that God promises take faith, takes perseverance. Jacob is going to go through many trials, through horrific trials, and we're going to begin to see these even next week as we look at the final Toledot of Genesis. But these trials are going to, as we've seen already, they're going to refine him. They're going to sanctify him. They're going to be used for his good and God's glory. But for now, it seems like Isaac's oracle from chapter 27 was only half true. It seems that Esau did live by the, by the sword, but he, he seems to be really living on the fatness of the earth, doesn't he? He seems to be really prospering. But that's just it. Things aren't always as they seem. While it's true that, that, that Jacob and Esau reconciled and, and parted as brothers, that peace did not remain with their offspring the Edomites are going to set themselves against Israel and prove themselves to be the enemies of God. The, the people of Israel who first received this have already seen that taking place. In, in Numbers chapter 20, when they, they asked the king of Edom for, for safe passage through their land, how did, how did the king respond? You're my brother, come on through. No, he sent an army against them. He's saying, if you try to pass, we're going to crush you. But it got even worse, or will get even worse. A thousand years later, in Ezekiel chapter 35, we read about how the Edomites are going to help the Babylonians destroy the walls of Jerusalem and slaughter the Israelites. And later still, the, the Edomites, who will become called the Edomians, from them will come the Herods the despot, despot rulers who rule over Israel, the same family who's going to slaughter the children of Bethlehem in an attempt to kill Jesus, the same ones who will behead John the Baptist, the same ones who will conspire to crucify Jesus. These are the Edomites. These are the descendants of Esau. Esau and his people prospered for a time. But as Franz Delich declares, secular greatness in general 
grows up far more rapidly than spiritual greatness. Did you hear that? Secular greatness in general grows up far faster than spiritual greatness. And, and secular greatness is, is often more visible. It's, it's in the eyes of the world. It, it is what looks good. It's what, it's what people want. But spiritual greatness is lowly. It's humble. It, it's not appealing to the world. And it's often hard. Friends, don't conclude that temporal blessings are a sign of God's eternal favor. Let me say that again. Do not conclude that temporal blessings are a sign of God's eternal favor. Now, now I think people here are, are quite familiar with the heresy of the prosperity gospel. That, that teaches that the sign of God's blessing is that you're going to be healthy, you're going to be wealthy. This is, this is heresy. This is, not, this is no gospel at all. It's, it's not good news. It's bad news. I, th I think, th thankfully, people here in this church are going to deny this teaching. We know that we don't have our best life now. But I wonder if any of this, this unbiblical, these unbiblical principles have somehow infiltrated your thinking. It, it's so easy because of, of everything that we're being fed from the world. It's so easy to think, like a prosperity gospel preacher. The sign of, of God's favor is temporal blessing. Maybe you're even tempted to be envious of the wicked around you. You know, I, I, th I think of, of some of the, the neighbors and, and who... who um, you know, one is a, is a, a couple, are, they're Buddhists, and they say, wow, like, like you, you have a hard life. And when you, if your concept is karma, then of course that's going to be your conclusion. Don't be like Asaph in Psalm 73. Let's turn there for just a moment, please, to Psalm 73. Psalm 73, 1. Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. Why? For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. He was envious of the wicked when he, he saw that they had a good life. They had an easy life. How many of the, the ungodly neighbors that, that you have or co-workers seem to have the easy life? They, they have no God, but but they're happy, or at least they, they seem happy. And that's what Asaph is struggling with here. And he, he goes on to talk about, about the struggles of what he sees and the, the incongruity with, with what he thinks the, the way God should be. But look at verse 16. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went to the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end. Then I discerned their end. You set them, truly you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away by terrors. And he goes on to, to describe th their end, which is eternal death. 
But verse 23, nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You, you guide me with your counsel, and afterward, you will receive me to glory. Do not be deceived when you see the prosperity of those around you into thinking that this is a sign of God's favor on them. Or that your apparent lack of prosperity is a sign of God's disfavor on you. I, I love the fact that, that Psalm 2, we're talking about this with the guys at the conference. I love the fact that Psalm 73 and, and Psalm 37, is a, uh, they both kind of have, have the same subject matter. It's like a numeric palindrome if there's such a thing. So, Psalm 37 deals with the same thing. Fret not yourself because of evildoers. Be not envious because of wrongdoers, for they will soon fade like the grass and wither like the green herb. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and befriend, befriend faithfulness. Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. He'll give you himself, the greatest desire of your heart. Do not be deceived by the apparent prosperity you see around you or your seeming lack of it. Friends, Esau is not one of the good guys. He's not part of the chosen seed. He and his heritage are part of the seed of rejection. We see this by Esau's behavior in rejecting his family, rejecting his heritage. We see this in the rejection of, the, of his descendants as well. A whole book of the Bible, Obadiah, is devoted to prophecy against the Edomites. Malachi asks the question in Malachi 1, 2, and 3, Is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord, yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. This is quoted by Paul in Romans 9, 13. The writer of Hebrews warns against being unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. Hebrews 12, 16. It doesn't look good. For Esau and his four and for his descendants. Yet there is hope for the Edomites. There is hope for the Edomites. In the middle of Obadiah, a prophecy against Edom, there's a hint that salvation is going to come to the Edomites. Amos. Uh, 9 verses 11 and 12 pick up on this in the prophecy that, that the Lord is going to raise up the booth of David to possess the remnant of Edom and all the nature, nations who are called by God's name. Did you hear that? The remnant of Edom. This passage is quoted in, in Acts 15 verses 7, 15 to 17 referring to the, the salvation of the Gentiles. Some of the Edomites are going to be saved. And turn with me in your Bible to, to Matthew or to Mark rather chapter 3 verses 7 and 8. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea and a great crowd followed from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Idumea and from beyond the Jordan and from the, around the Tyre and Sidon. When the crowd, when the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him. Idumeans, Edomites, descendants of Esau sat 
under the ministry of Jesus Christ. And some of them, praise God, were saved. If you are sitting here this morning as a born-again follower of Jesus Christ, you can take heart that if there is hope for the, the descendants of Esau, there is hope for you. If, if you are here this morning as a believer, as a Gentile believer, which I think all of us are, we were, according to our birth, outside the covenant promise, but through Jesus Christ, the, the greater covenant, we have been brought near. We have been saved. We've been adopted into God's family. The wall of hostility that's broken down between us and Israel. And infinitely more importantly than that, the wall of hostility is broken down between us and God. Don't conclude that temporal blessings are a sign of God's eternal favor. Look instead for the eternal blessings that come through our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. The eternal blessings that we have in Him. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, what a great gospel. This is the power to save. Lord, it's the power to save even the descendants of Esau. It's the power to save even us. And so, Lord, we who are called by another name, Lord, we who are Gentiles, we who are strangers to the covenants of promise, have now received the name Christian, a name that is looked at with ignominy in the world, but Lord, it is a name that we rejoice in. We rejoice in the name of Christ, our Lord and Savior, the only Lord and Savior for all peoples of the earth. Lord, I pray that as we consider these things, that Lord, as we see your promises to your people and even to the promises that extend by your grace to people who are outside the covenant, Lord, we pray that you would help us to take heart. We pray that you would help us, Lord, to, to, to re, reorient our thinking. Lord, not to be focused on the temporal blessings of this world, but Lord, to be focused on the eternal blessings in Christ our Savior. For it's in his name we pray. Amen.